Get hooked, wrapped, and dished. All week long on WebmasterRadio.fm. Your destination for education and entertainment. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Stand by for the hook. Welcome to The Hook with Katie Kempner, Vice President of Agency Communications at Crispin Porter & Boguski, the most awarded advertising agency in the world. Every Tuesday at the intersection of advertising and PR, The Hook, where Katie talks with advertising visionaries, top journalists, cutting-edge creatives, authors, and PR gurus. Hear what these industry insiders have to say about the changing landscape of advertising and PR today. Now here's your host, Katie Kempner. Hello, I'm Katie Kempner. Today is Tuesday, March 13th, and you are listening to The Hook, where each week I talk to advertising, branding, and public relations insiders who are both leading and covering the industry. The thought leaders I talk with bring their unique perspective on this, what this rapidly changing and evolving industry means to them and, and ultimately to you. And my hope is that you will find these conversations both informative and even at times inspirational. It's a tall order, I know, but one that I also know we can fill today with my guest, Holly Sanders. Holly Sanders is a business reporter for the New York Post, the nation's fifth largest paper. I did not know that. For three years, she has covered Madison Avenue, and her stories also span marketing strategy for major U.S. companies and the sponsorship of high-profile entertainment and sporting events, such as the Super Bowl and the Olympics. In May 2004, she began reporting for the paper's business section, writing about technology. Previously, she was a financial reporter for Bloomberg News, where she covered media conglomerates such as Time Warner and NBC Universal. She also covered cable TV operators, including Comcast and Adelphia Communications. Holly received a master's in journalism from Northwestern University in 2000 and a bachelor's in journalism from the University of Oregon or Oregon, she'll have to tell me, in 1999, and she is a member of Phi Beta Kappa. Holly, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Is it now? How do you say it? Is it Oregon or Oregon or? It's it's Oregon. I say it's Oregon. like the instrument, Oregon. Yeah, but it's okay. A lot of people say Oregon. Maybe we should just consider pronouncing it differently and make it easier for everyone. <laughs> well, you know, is it like the is it the Caribbean? Is it the Caribbean? I mean, <laughs> exactly. You know, if you live there, you probably it's like nobody who lives in Illinois says Illinois, right? But you'll you'll catch a few people here and there that that'll think it's the latter. So, well, in the advertising community, I think the biggest dispute would be the is it con or can? Yes. Yeah, you know, I never did figure it out. And I do have a French friend, though, who pronounced it for me. And I have to say, the reason I think for the confusion is that the French kind of do a cross between the two. But you have to have that, that Frenchness about you to pull but that one off, unfortunately. <laughs> or it won't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, how are you doing with daylight savings time? I'm, I personally am exhausted. Yeah, you know, I actually went to a wedding this weekend, so I think it was the wedding that wore me out. Daylight savings time was the least of my problems, but I think I caught up on my sleep now. Weddings are fun. I love weddings. Yeah. No, this was uh, my actually a good friend of mine who also um, was a journalist for a brief spell. She's now going to medical school, of all things. So, <laughs> yeah, it, she decided to be easier than journalism. I, actually, I'm kidding, but uh, you never... <laughs> journalism <laughs> you know, to medicine, that makes a lot of sense Yeah, it does. <laughs> actually, she did work for Medical Journal for a while, so she was uh, a medical journalist, so to speak. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about about what about the post and I, first of all, I didn't know that was the fifth largest paper in the nation. Yeah, it just happened this year. Uh we overtook uh the Daily News. I'm sorry for any Daily News lovers out there that are listening, but we did. We uh we we officially, I don't know if you could say we won the tabloid tabloid war, but we certainly pulled ahead at least in this battle. So, um that was that was nice. Yeah, it's you know, been been years and years in the making because the post used to have, I think, a circulation of around 250,000 mm-hmm. um, in, you know, around 2000, and so it's come a long ways. I mean, it's, it's you know, practically tripled that. So um, something to be proud of. It's, a, it's a, you know, we like to brag that they're the country's fastest-growing paper. I don't know how, how true that is this, this quarter, but we'll see when the numbers come out. <laughs> well, congratulations on, on the first part of it. But now I saw a quote that you had in an, in, in an interview in PR Week where you said that the New York Post is a really good reporter's paper. Yeah, you know, that, that comment, I think, well, I think that comment caught a lot of people by surprise, but I, I am as sincere now in saying that as I was then, and it's, what I mean by that is, 
you know, I think a lot of reporters like myself appreciate having the latitude and freedom to pursue stories that they are interested in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you work at a really big paper, it can be very bureaucratic. You know, you, there's a lot of decision makers. Everybody's trying to decide what goes in the business section, what goes on the front page. And the nice thing about the Post is that when you go to your editor and you tell him or her, you know, this is a story I want to do. I think this is important and this is why. It's still an entrepreneurial enough a place that they will say, okay. You know, every mm-hmm. once in a while you might run into a little, um, you know, into an obstacle or two. But for the most part, I mean, um, they, they give you pretty much free reign. And I, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I, I, other places where I've worked or where I've interned have made that, you know, much more difficult. There are just a lot of, of moving parts. And here it's, it's a pretty slim organization in that sense. You know, they, the reporters have a, um, a lot of pull, and I think the editors do support us. We want to go after something. So that's what I meant by that comment. Well, what, what are some of the stories that you're interested in right now? Well, um, <laughs> the, the, you want me to tell you what I'm working on today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there, there, well, there actually there are some bigger, you know, bigger picture um, trends going on out there. I mean, you know, it's it's the annual ritual known as the Upfront is coming up. Um, it starts kind of gaining steam in April and then becomes, you know, full bore in in May, so to speak. And that's um, that's when, you know, the world's biggest advertisers essentially and the television networks meet and try to hash out pricing. And they, they basically end up, you know, buying and selling roughly three quarters of the television ad time. So that's a really, that's a big deal. And with television under a lot of pressure these days to maintain rates, um, there's, you know, a lot of concern about how many people are actually tuning in now. Obviously, a lot of people are skipping commercials with TiVo and DVRs. And, um, in addition, there's a lot more competition from the Internet and video games and cell phones, you name it. There's, I think a lot of eyes are on the upfront this year. Um, I mean, it can be a little bit insiderish. It's most mm-hmm. negotiations go on behind closed doors. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There are also a lot of glitzy presentations, which is really the only thing you see on the surface. You know, the networks trot out all their talent and try to wine and dine the, um, the advertising community, which is understandable. Everybody, you know, wants to pull in a lot of ad dollars. Um, but it's a complicated and long process, but it also is, is a strong indication of how healthy the advertising market is and what kind of pricing they're going to be able to get. Um, so journalists like me, of course, you can't ignore it, no matter how many times you cover it, like the Super Bowl ads, you know, right. you've got to tune in. So that's one really big story. Um, so another big one that's out there is um, uh, changes in the, you know, everybody talks about change in the ad industry, and of course it is an industry in major flux. I mean, Crispin obviously uh, is one of those agencies that's kind of leading the charge in, in the way that it has kind of a better lay of the land about how media is changing and how to reach consumers, especially, I mean, you, you know, this young men. Everybody wants to figure out how do you reach young men, and Crispin certainly earned, earned a reputation for being able to um, get close to them and probably most agencies. But there's a lot of concerns about how agencies have to reposition themselves and, and stay relevant. And clearly, um, you know, they're struggling to do that. I mean, I'm just looking at statistics that are out today in your report about the number of chief marketing officers at large companies that are looking at uh, making changes to their, their ad agencies or their agency roster. And um, roughly half said that they were looking at making changes this year. That's a, that's a huge number. I mean, that kind they, of turnover is unheard of. Excuse me. <laughs> what companies? Let me. Let me oh, quickly I, wish, I wish I could. I wish I could break them out. Unfortunately, the survey is an aggregate. But nonetheless, the fifty percent mark—that's pretty startling. I think. Yeah, that for, is and, pretty startling. Yeah, and I think the ad agencies, um, you know, are working overtime to figure out, you know, how do they make how they make everybody happy. But there's just huge pressures on the business, and a lot of it, you know, in fairness to the ad agencies, a lot of them don't necessarily have control. Uh, over all the moving parts. You know, there's not a lot they can do about, you know, media fragmentation. You know, a lot of people watching the Internet instead of television, for instance. There's just not much they can do about that. The trick for them is trying to figure out where the eyeballs are going to move to, and that, that's not easy. Well, you know, I, you haven't. You raise an excellent point, and I think it actually ties into a, another thing that I know that really interests you, which is, and I'm using a, wor- a word that you said, said in, in other places, not me, the decline or the change of the traditional advertising agency. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the old model of, you know, uh, one company, one big ad agency, uh, we have a 20-year-long relationship, you charge me 15% fees on my media buying, that, that model, I think, is just is pretty much cooked. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think um, you're going to see companies do a lot more project work, um, well, we're already seeing this. I mean, it's very rare, actually. It's not very rare. It's becoming much more common, I should say, for agencies uh, or actually for advertisers to have multiple agencies and for them to call in reinforcements when they have a big product launch, for instance. That's becoming more the model. And, and I think agents, you know, because there's um, 
smaller agencies have shown that they can handle bigger accounts. You know, it used to be, if you were a global company, you needed a big ad agency to be able to reach into every corner of the world. There are all sorts of different agencies now that are able to handle these really big accounts and to go into you know a lot of a lot of different countries to get the job done, either by partnering up with agencies locally, um, by, you know, they can basically establish a virtual network, so to speak, or, you know, Mm -hmm. hiring people just to service that account. I mean, they're able to keep things smaller. They don't necessarily need to have a global presence to handle these big accounts. And so, you know, that's a big change. That's, That's basically, you know, the traditional agency model is coming under attack from all sides. And I've just named two of them. I mean, there are other, <laughs> there are other problems on the horizon for them. But now, let me, let me ask you something. I mean, you said something that we think about a lot at CPB, which I guess now we're considered a much bigger agency, but we're certainly not considered, you know, the old model, which is things are, you know, things are being parceled out in, in, in projects, and that's difficult when you're trying to build a brand. I mean, do you think that that's affecting brands in a negative way? I think it can cut both ways. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, Prime example, and this also, <laughs> I hate to keep talking about Crispin, but it, it comes into play here. Um, you know, Wyden and, uh, Wyden and Kennedy, um, long, you know, Portland ad agency, well-known, has had a very um, long and prosperous relationship with their key client, Nike, for years. And Nike did come out today and say, we're looking to expand our agency roster. Um, Nike is considered to be one of the most successful marketers out there. They've, you know, managed to maintain their brand and their position for years and continue to grow. And the fact that even they would say, look, we're, we're looking for a little bit more creative juice here is kind of shocking in some ways. And, you know, I understand Crispin, um, you know, that Nike's been talking to Crispin about a piece of the business. So I have um, no comment on no that com- at no, all. No, well, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> expecting it, although feel free to throw it out there. But, but the bottom line is that... Um, that well, you may get an advantage in terms of, like, you know, you do want that new sort of creative mojo, for lack of a better way to put it. There's a, a drawback in the sense that I think that the longer you work with an agency, probably a better understanding they get of, of the brand, the DNA, and mm-hmm. probably the research. I mean, research is a huge part of advertising and marketing. Make no mistake about it. It's not just putting a, a cute little ad up there. I mean, you have to really understand who the, cu- you know, the customer is and what they want. And if you don't have time to get steeped in that or there's constant churn or change, I'm kind of wondering if you're not losing a lot of time and money trying to break in a new agency each time. You know, that seems to me to be the risk there. Um, That and, you know, maybe not everybody acts in in good faith. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) no, I think you're, I mean, I think you're 100% right. I think it's very difficult for an agency to truly get in and know the brand if they don't have the opportunity to do that and instead they're trying to just do this one thing or this other thing. And But you're right, that's the way things are going. But now let me ask you sort of the second part to this question, which is what does that mean for the traditional advertising agency like YNR or Lowe or, you know, somebody that's, you know, names that were originally synonymous with Madison Avenue? Right. Well, I mean... It's it's no secret that both Y&R and Lowe have serious problems and have lost a tremendous amount of business. So what you can already see in the traditional agencies is that you either evolve, meaning you either mm-hmm. figure out how to advertise on the Internet. You figure out, you know, you somehow, um, you know, I don't know whether it's you bolster your research, you get more creative talent from different shops, whatever it takes, you have to figure out how to meet the changing needs of the industry. And if you don't do it, you suffer. If you do, you can make the transition and, and you know, become a, perhaps a different kind of beast, you know, than what you were before. Yeah. But, um, you know, advertising has been such a lucrative business for so long, you know, doing what it's, what it's done. And it's still an industry that, by and large, depends on the 30-second television commercial, which I'm not one of the people, by the way, that believes the 30-second ad spot is going to go away, not in the near future. I think it's, I think it's going to be around for quite some time. But I think how it's done um, and who does it <laughs> and how much they charge for it is certainly changing. And uh, the traditional agencies have to get ahead of that um, because certainly some of them are falling behind, and that's, that's I, I would not be surprised if at some point you saw um, that, you know, one of the big traditional agencies subsumed by a, much, by a smaller agency even or, uh, well, you are seeing this, um, Draft, a well-known mm-hmm. direct marketer combined with, with Foot Cone and Belding, a storied advertising agency, Draft is taking the lead in that merger. They are the ones that are basically calling the shots. I mean, um, they may disagree, but <laughs> that, that is, in fact, what's going on. So you can already see the, the balance of power shifting considerably. You know, they're having to come up with new models and new ways of doing things. 
we'll see how it all pans out. I mean, I can make some predictions, but probably only half of them will be right. <laughs> well, maybe we should hear some predictions. And I definitely want to talk more about the shifting. You, you talked about, you know, ad dollars shifting to the Internet. Let's do this. Let's take a very short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more. Sit tight and don't move. The Hook. We'll be back after this short break. Faster than a speeding bullet, it's the super way to pay. It's Fast Transact. Fast Transact is the safe, secure, and fast way to process credit cards, online checks, and gift cards. Find multiple payment gateway and merchant account options to keep your costs down and sales up, up, and away. You can build your business empire in a single bound, while Fast Transact fights the never-ending battle to keep payment processing safe and secure. Your quest for an e-commerce solution has found its final destination. Fly over to FastTransact.com today. MarketingExperiments.com Learn how we increase traffic by 446% with our Google AdWords campaign while reducing cost per click by 58% at MarketingExperiments.com MarketingExperiments.com Log on and register for our interactive SEM certification course today and discover how to build, target, and maximize ad campaigns like an expert through our proven paid search optimization formula. MarketingExperiments.com For details, see MarketingExperiments.com slash PPC. Marketing Experiments. Discover what really works. It's a no-brainer. Reaching customers everywhere they search is smart business. However, reaching them through web and mobile search as well as free directory assistance with effective pay-per-call advertising is, well, ingenious. Ingenio Pay-Per-Call delivers highly targeted phone call leads to businesses looking for new customers. And the advertising business only pays per new customer lead. Call 1-800-705-0632 today to ask about your free trial or go to Ingenio.com slash web radio. That's Ingenio.com slash web radio. Ingenio. Simply ingenious. Incredibly entertaining. I want to ask you a question that comes with controversy. Oh, now you're really tapping into it, Byron. See, now you get a chance to ask all the questions that you always wanted to know. Even better, this is going to be podcast so we can listen and laugh later. This is one of your favorite things. Keep it simple, stupid. Tiger, tiger, tiger. Yeah, no question. I think it was tiger, 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 tiger. <laughs> he is the name. I mean, he is what golf is uh, resting on right now. <laughs> I think he's a great team player. He did buy his wife a new yacht. Yeah, well, for that team, he's doing well. Yeah. <laughs> Get to know Melanie Mayer on Life Tips, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, only on webmasterradio.fm. Just getting your feet wet on the internet? Then dive into our stream. WebmasterRadio.fm We're the coolest place around. WebmasterRadio.fm We're everywhere. Now back to The Hook. The intersection of advertising and PR. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm Now, here's your host... Hi, welcome back. I'm Katie Kempner, and I am speaking, talking with Holly Sanders today of the New York Post. Hello, Holly. Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Looking at the clock, a little worried about deadline, but it's all good. <laughs> we'll talk fast. <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm, I carved out some time. <laughs> well, thank you. So I'm looking at this. My husband gave me a very unexpected and beautiful piece of jewelry this weekend, and Ooh. it's this gorgeous, gorgeous ring. And uh, I was so excited, and I just called him really quickly to say, you know, I love the ring. I'm looking at it all day. <laughs> He said it reminded him of my eye, which is like, you know, you know me, and my I have uh-huh. one normally blue eye and one like kind of wacky kaleidoscope, <laughs> and I thought that's not a very nice thing to say or 
reminded you of my well, one eye. It's a wandering eye, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's not a wandering eye. It just happens to be blue, green, and brown as opposed to your normal one color. But right. so that's not the eye that the ring reminded him of. But uh, it, it, you know. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> it sounds like a beautiful ring, though. <laughs> oh, it's stunning. <laughs> I'll have to show it to you soon. So, you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned an agency that I just wanted to touch on really quickly, um, FCB Draft merging, and they merged, and then quickly right away they got embroiled or in the middle of a big controversy when they were awarded the Walmart account, and then it was yanked away from them. Oh, yeah. And I bad, wanted to know, scandal of you know, year. being as opposed to, how how much of some of a story like that do you focus your attention on, and how much is it not as interesting to you? Well, I had to be upfront. That was sort of a tabloid dream come true, and right. my, my apologies to to draft FCB. I'm sure it was not fun um, to be in that situation, but I, you know I don't know how many people obviously listening are familiar with the story, but you know it was a huge scandal by and large. I mean they they won this high profile, you know, close to six hundred million dollar account. That's in terms of ad spending. And um, big win for them, and it was it was seen as you know affirmation of this this new you know merged ad agency model, and and everybody was both um, you know pleasantly um, well, you know basically pleasantly surprised, and then lo and behold, you know two months later um, this big fallout, and it basically came down to you know Walmart ousted its ad chief uh, Julie Rame, and there were some you know in some. Uh, questionable circumstances, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. It's a lot of mudslinging, and Draft got caught up in that and was, you know, basically uh, a victim of that, and, and Walmart, you know, fired them, too. And, uh, I mean, we, we wrote uh, several <laughs> uh, front-of-the-business section stories on it, and it, it just it sort of had all those elements of, um, of things gone wrong. In, in the ad agency business, basically. So for us, we were, we were devoting a lot of time and energy to it, and I, and I don't think we were unusual in that regard. I think, you know, most of my competitors were um, pretty hot and heavy on that story as well. Well, let me ask you, when you are looking for a story to cover, I mean, something like that, you're right, is like a tabloid dream. But yeah. what, what do you look for in a great story? Because I, I think you're not so interested in campaigns, right? It's much more the news aspect of it. Right, well, we... When I was first, you know, brought on board to cover this beat, my editor was very clear-cut with me about this, and I, and I think this has been a good strategy. Um, if, you, if you go up to anybody on the street and you say, name, name a big ad agency, you'll be lucky if they're able to name, you know, one, if, if, you know, let alone two, right? I mean, m- most people obviously know a lot about advertising, but not a lot about, uh, about the business behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, our feeling is that when you, you when you focus on things like account changes or this mid-level manager left to go to you know to this other agency, by and large consumers don't have a lot of interest in that. And to be honest, I don't think a lot of people. We have a heavy media media readership at the Post. I mean, we're you know New York being the center of, of media, and we're we're pretty. Um, in terms of reporting resources, we've devoted a lot there. And I can even say even, even people in other areas of media don't necessarily care all that much about sort of that, that what they would consider to be minutiae of the ad mm-hmm. business. I mean, I know for the ad agencies it's incredibly important and there's a lot of money at stake, but I'm saying that for the average person on the street or even the fairly, you know, media-savvy person, it's not nearly as, as interesting. Um, so I try to come at it from, from one of two different ways. I either say, would this be interesting to the person on the street? Meaning, would they sort of look at something and say, gee, now why are they doing that? Or what were they thinking? Or, you know, will they just be so bombarded with it that they can't help but notice it? So I will write stories about ads or trends in advertising that I think will be of interest to them. So that's mm-hmm. one way I go at it. Um, and, I, I'm, you know, maybe it's like, I'll, I'll just bring up an example here. Uh, the Post has been very interested in the... Um, the Geico Caveman ads. I don't know if you how familiar you are with them, mm-hmm. but they've developed this sort of you know really big loyal following, right? And sure, that's a that's a campaign story. That's you know you see this ad, isn't it isn't it cool or fun or maybe maybe it annoys the heck out of you. I don't know where you where you are on the spectrum. I'm on but, that um, side, but I understand that a lot of people love it, and so I'm in favor. Yeah. Of it. So we will write about things that have that have attained pop culture status, so to speak. Yeah. What what we don't do is. Um, you know, a company has a new ad campaign launching, and um, we describe it, and, and, and here's, here's what you can expect to see. It needs to have some sort of bigger picture thrust to it. So um, an example of a story I wrote recently was Nike was doing a big um, campaign around the Air Force One. The Air Force One is the most successful shoe franchise in, in all of history, and um, it's, it's incredibly important to Nike. So we'll write about 
like I said, something like that with a bigger picture issue to mm-hmm. it. Um, but for the most part, we don't write straight campaign stories. And, and, and uh, the other way I would say that we go about covering the beat is um, my, my editors are interested in the business of advertising. Where are the dollars mm-hmm. going to? How is it mm-hmm. changing? Who's on the way up? Who's on the way down? We will connect the dots in, in, that, in that sense. Um, and, and they care a lot about that. But we, we kind of go one of, the, one of those two ways, and that, that might seem a little bit strange because um, it's kind of a, you know, a bifurcation, <laughs> so to speak. But it's, oddly enough, it's kind of worked for us. It's allowed us to be, I think, of enough interest to the advertising business and also to consumers. Um, well, let's talk. Can, can we talk about a few of your recent stories that I, I think um, will sort of illustrate both? Like, for example, uh, a story from February 21st about uh, – Poor Britney Spears and uh, her scent. Yes, yes, poor Britney. Well, once again, you know, Britney is um, tabloid fodder, and she can take up a lot of column inches in that respect. But there there is a pretty significant business and and advertising story behind Britney, and that is, um, for a lot of people that aren't aware of it, um, Britney has four fragrances that are um, licensed and marketed through a huge cosmetics company, Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder has made hundreds of millions off of these fragrances. They, they've been among the best sellers on the marketplace. Um, and they just actually went through the holiday, you know, Christmas shopping season, in mm-hmm. which a tremendous number of fragrances are sold. That's like, you know, the fragrance um, selling season, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And sales were pretty good, but what, you know, calling around to analysts, and, and what I discovered was that, um, you know, people were returning you know, Brittany gift, gift fragrance sets, for instance, and the store managers were concerned that sales were slower than what they had expected. And this was, you know, all sort of coming at around the same time where she was having her very public, I don't know if you want to call it meltdown. You know, she'd been in and out of rehab several times. She'd shaved her head bald. And so I know that there's a lot of, you know, there's some very titillating elements to the story. It's also a pretty significant business story. I mean, for Estee Lauder, uh, a huge chunk of their sales are Britney Spears fragrances. So um, that's kind of one of those interesting areas where marketing, yeah. business, and, and the tabloid aspect all come together quite nicely, even though I feel very bad for Brittany. <laughs> I do, too. I hope she's going to be okay. But now, wh- now what do you think if she bounces back, I mean, just from the people that you've spoken to, if she does bounce back and emerges uh, from rehab, you know, her hair grows back and she seems a little bit more like the old Brittany people like, you think her... You know, there won't be any problem with the perfume, or you think it's tainted? I think she has to have a hit album. She has to do what Mariah Carey did uh, after, Mar- you know, Mariah Carey also had a quite public meltdown. I think she actually went to um, uh, a retreat, so to speak, um, for, for a little bit. I think she had a nervous breakdown after she had that movie Glitter, which really tanked the box office. It was a big embarrassment. She had an album that didn't do so well. She was dropped by her label. I believe it was Sony at the time. That's right. I mean, things couldn't have looked worse for Mariah. But somehow she got picked up by a new label. I believe it was Def Jam and put out, you know, one of the biggest albums of, I want to say, last year, perhaps the year before. Um, I'm trying to remember my Grammy Award ceremonies here. Huge hit. You know, obviously did re- really well. And now she's, you know, she's back on top. Britney's going to have to do that, um, I think, before she can become the marketing machine that she was before. Whether it'll happen, gosh, I don't know. I feel like that's in the hands of her music producers <laughs> in large part. You know, I mean, it's just it's such an, it, you know, you, you're, you're right. You see it so, so many times. You get, you know, this society or culture loves to build you up quickly, the first to knock you down, want to build you up again. I mean... It's, it's, it's an interesting rough. thing. You know, I kind of wonder, going back to the FCB story, where Julie Rome is going to land, because I think she'll be right back on her feet at an, in an even better job. And I don't know her, but just from following the ups and downs of that. I, I have, I guess you could say, um, a career trajectory that I could see working out for Julie. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how well you know her. She's, she's obviously very articulate, very bright, um, has a lot of you know, interesting insights into the marketing realm. But she's quite outspoken, and I think she needs to find um, a place to land that appreciates that. I think in some ways she's been uh, you know, toiling away at companies that don't necessarily appreciate that. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a little while before she lands in some place that's a good fit for her. She might end up, I mean, I've talked to Julie fairly recently, and, and she was, you know, she said she's looking at some other options. Even she said she's been approached even by, like, private equity, for instance. So I don't know where that could end up landing her, maybe at some advertising startup that's doing something different other than, you know, that may be advertising-related but isn't about the business of creating ads per se. You know, it may be more technology-focused, for instance. I, 
I could see her landing someplace like that and taking some time out from just being, you know, from that, that chief marketing officer job, which can be so difficult to do. And, and to, you know, the tenure, the yeah. turnover in that position is incredibly high. I mean, the average um, CMO lasts less than two years. And she was in an equivalent position. She was advertising chief for Walmart, which is obviously um, a big pressure job, you know, high pressure job, excuse me. Well, you know, it's amazing because, you know, you had said earlier that 50% of CMOs are looking to change their agency, and, I'm, yeah. and, and now we talk about how short the life of a CMO is. I mean, how, you know, how do they even have enough time to affect change? Or actually, do they? Because I think the answer is probably often they don't. You know, I think, here's, here's what I think is, is happening, because I wrote a story recently about the CMO turnover and, and how it seems to be getting worse. And there seems to be a couple of different things that are driving this. One is that the expectations for a CMO seem seem pretty out of whack with what they can, um, with what they can truly accomplish on the job. I mean, a CMO isn't just a marketing advertising person. They're not just coming up with the ads. They're expected to be a strategist, a business strategist, and in many cases with a fair amount of operational experience as well. So they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of wearing two hats. They're sort of a, a mini CEO in some ways. You know, they're supposed to be looking out for the business, seeing where it's headed, worried about sales and profit. And they're also expected to be creative, on the other hand, and come up with this great advertising and marketing program that wows people. That is a really hard job um, to do, and it's hard to find somebody with the right skills. Um, so that's one, you know, one pretty big problem. The other is that assuming that you even get somebody who, who has, you know, the complete package, so to speak. Um, companies that are, you know, they, they usually bring in this type of CMO when they say, like, we need uh, a, a game changer here. You know, we're really re- willing to look at every aspect of the business and overhaul our marketing and do all these things. We need, we need, a, we need a quick turnaround here, right? Mm-hmm. So when the C person in the CMO position begins to do that, they immediately encounter resistance, <laughs> and unhappiness coming from all sorts of different corners of the, of the company, typically. And that makes that job just, you know, in some cases, virtually impossible. I mean, I'm, I, don't, I can't speak with, you know, certainty as to what, for instance, went down at Walmart and with the Julie Rame situation, but what I can say is that there was a clear clash when it came to what changes should be made and how quickly those should be made at Walmart, you know, which has had a very marketing program for many years. They sort of stuck to the, the low price proposition and that's done very well for them. But now that they're running up against, you know, competition from Target and Kohl's that are a little bit more fashionable and stylish, you know, Walmart is, is feeling like it needs to change, right? Well, you know, Julie's sort of, you know, pushing them and she was brought in to help push them in that direction by and large. And then when that didn't pan out, you know, the way Walmart expected the change wasn't happening as quickly perhaps as they wanted or maybe it was happening too quickly, yeah. um, you know, that, that's when she was at. And this happens, at, I mean, Walmart is, is not the exception. I mean, Walmart is, is what's going on across the country at a lot of different companies that are, you know, frustrated um, with their marketing. And unfortunately, that frustration, you know, falls pretty much on the CMO's shoulders. They tend to be the first person to get fired when things go wrong at a company. If you go yeah. back and look, it's kind of sad. It's an excellent point. So let's talk about one or two other stories recently. Um, you want to you want to pick one, or should I pick one? You pick uh, one. No, well, oh, gosh, I, you know, honestly, Katie, they all run together. They, they were all so important to me that day. <laughs> and then it's like remembering what you had for dinner last night. Um, I'm trying to think about. Uh, one that I've How about the recently. YouTube one, the YouTube deal with NBA? Now, that's a story that probably is more interesting to the, you know, media people, but also to uh, people on the street as well. It is. I, I, you know, all the, the sports leagues are, are obviously, you know, when it, comes, when it comes to television, nothing has done a better job of continuing to hold on to viewers as well as charge high advertising rates as sports programming. I mean, and, and also you get that, that coveted young male demographic, right? So sports yeah. is, a, is incredibly important for advertising and media in general. Um, but, the, you know, there's also the sports leagues themselves, you know, are looking for ways to increase their revenue. So sticking with just television isn't necessarily in their best interest. But you also see them being very concerned about, you know, um, copyright protections making sure that they're adhering to the terms of their contracts with the networks that do so much to obviously, you know, broadcast and promote these sports. So they're having to walk a very fine line there. And what you see is that um, the NBA and also the NHL have decided to experiment with other uh, ways of distribution, and one of them being, you know, online and in particular YouTube. And, you know, they, they struck this, this deal where they basically gave YouTube um, 
the right to show some of the highlights that the NBA, game highlights that the NBA also shows on its site, as well as to, um, and part of this was, was basically to help promote the NBA. YouTube is doing some marketing programs around it, for instance, allowing fans to download their own homemade clips of them, you know, making a dunk or whatever basketball move they want to do. So it's, it's a quid pro quo, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think they're going into this, you know, somewhat tentatively just to see how it works out. I think it's, it's the same with the NHL. But you also see other leagues like the NFL, which is, you know, pretty much the sports powerhouse, especially in terms of money. Um, they have incredibly lucrative contracts with the networks, and um, they've been reluctant to go on YouTube. In fact, they've, they've sent pretty much cease and desist letters demanding that they take down, um, you know, the copyrighted content from their games. So, once again, it's one of those situations, you know, where... Um, you know, the ad business is kind of sitting there in between figuring out, okay, which way is this one going to go? <laughs> and it's not easy to tell. <laughs> well, I mean, and that that was something that, you know, I said before the break, let's, let's sort of talk about the shift of ad dollars to the Internet. I mean, you're right. Everybody is looking and money is moving. I mean, what do you kind of see as the trajectory of how this is going to happen? Or do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, so many thoughts, actually, and they kind of change from, from minute to minute, depending on who I'm talking to at the time. I, I think what, uh, what we're going to see is there, there's clearly the dollars, how the, the advertising pie, how that's cut up now. I mean, the portions are going to change. Television, which has had a huge chunk, is clearly going to see that chunk either shrink or stay the same. And, and when I say shrink, it might be because that they're not able to command the high rates that they once did. I mean, for years and years and years, television was able to pass through double-digit ad rate hikes, and I think those days are behind them. Um, that's one of the reasons why people are paying pretty close attention to the upfront, is it's a, it's a good indicator of, of what they can get, you know, for their, mm-hmm. um, for their ad time. So I think you're going to, that's one trend, you know, you're, you're going to see um, the older traditional media, you know, the price increases aren't going to be there. You're going to see the Internet, of course, grow. That's not a big surprise either. Um, but you're also going to see, you know, as the Internet grows and matures, you're going to see a flattening probably in some categories. I mean, you might already be seeing that. I mean, at some point, Yahoo, for instance, is becoming as big as one of the advertising networks in the terms of the number of people that, that you know, visit the homepage, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. And you're seeing that they're also kind of, their, their growth is, is leveling off. I mean, it's still in the double digits, but it may not be in another couple of years. So you, you see that happening. Meanwhile, you see other areas, for instance, um, paid search advertising, Google, obviously being the best example of that, which is still growing at a very, very rapid clip as companies figure, you know, figure out how best to use it. And, you know, they love how targeted it is. So, I think all these mediums are going to go around, are going to be around for a while. The pie is going to be sliced differently. They're going to have to make room for other players. And, of course, the ad agencies are going to have to be the ones to figure out how to, you know, how to devote dollars and how to best reach all these people across it. And, I mean, in saying that, that's not a particularly original thought. I just, I'm not a dooms, doomsayer in the sense that I don't <laughs> think, you know, the whole television business is going to go away or be upended. I think they're also going to grab a portion of the Internet dollars. They're going to figure out how to stream their content online, and I think some of them will do a better job than other ones. But, um, you know, it's all going to work out. I, I guess you could say I have sort of less concerns about the people who control the content and probably more concerns about the distribution. I mean, if mm-hmm. you think about it, if you're a cable company or you're a, saddle comp- or a satellite company or you're an Internet broadcaster, I mean, that's, you know, how, over what medium will people really be watching television in 10 years? You know, will it still be through the cable pipe into their home or will it be, you know, through, through the Internet connection that their cable provider supplies or will it be through some, you know, free Wi-Fi that the city has built? <laughs> I mean, I know those are really big questions, but for me it's, it's the distribution who controls that and how does it actually get to your home? That's kind of the bigger looming question. That I don't have much insight into because it seems to change every day. Yeah. And, and that, that's interesting because it's true. It's not that it's not going to be there, but, but the way that it gets there, you know, huge dollars are at stake. Yeah, it, absolutely. And um, I one time had a very smart investor in Wall Street tell me that you can always, you know, and, and a lot of people say this, that you can, um, when you make you know, investment decisions, maybe instead of looking at who actually makes the content, be it an ad agency or, um, you know, a television network or whomever, really what you need to think about is think about everything in terms of, of whether distribution were free, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then if you start making ad decisions about that, or, you know, you might have a better better sense of where things are headed. But it's, yeah, it's very tricky. <laughs> well, let's, since we've been 
touching on all the big sort of many big topics like, you know, the decline of the traditional yeah. advertising agency, what's happening with ad dollars on the Internet. Let's touch on one more real quickly. <laughs> sure. Product placement in television and in movies. I mean, it's so prevalent now. Is it doesn't work anymore. It does, but you know, I I actually think this is kind of one of the more interesting things going on in advertising because you see a bit of a nostalgia in in some ways for how the ad business used to work, and and what I mean is, um, I, I mean I'm you know I was born in '77, just FYI, but you know back in the in the good old you know the golden era of television when it was first coming on, you know you had programs that had a single sponsor, right? So was it Texaco Feeder is the one that people always bring up? You had a you know one program single sponsor, everybody remembered that sponsor's name. I feel mm-hmm. that the return and the increase in um, product placement or brand integration, whatever you know term you want to call it, is an effort to sort of get back to that era when you didn't have as much advertising clutter. Um, the the sponsors seemed like they really cared about the show. I mean, as silly as it sounds, it was almost like they had a vested interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you see going on there. And and you, you can actually, there are um, a fair number of, of cable networks or cable um, programmers who have started doing more uh, single sponsorship. You're, you're seeing that going on a fair amount. You know, for instance, yeah. even ESPN on SportsCenter, they've had nights where they've had, you know, just, just Apple iTunes sponsoring um, a show. And uh, um, Sprint, I believe, was another one. So you, you see more and more experimentation with that. You see advertisers willing to pay to be the lone sponsor of a show. You even see that going on in places like magazines. I mean, I believe it was Target who did, who was the sole sponsor of an entire issue of The New Yorker. It's all part of the same trend. It's you know, we want to be closely linked with the show. We want to stand out. We, we, we don't want the clutter that used to be there. And we want viewers to, to stay tuned during the point at which they can actually see our logo <laughs> at mm-hmm. some point during the show. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's effective. I, there's limits on how much you can do. Um, there are some shows that I think have overdone it. Uh, the Decline, for instance, and, you know, The Apprentice used to be one of the top shows on television. It's lost, lost a tremendous number of viewers. I think they overdid the product integration. The show almost became about, you know, the advertiser in the show uh-huh. rather than coming up with challenging or interesting tasks for the, for the competitors. So you have to be careful. You can see it go too far. Well, I mean, you know, one way... Uh, Chuck Porter said before that he sees a, a he he can see a time where it's possible where you say I want the Super Bowl brought to me by Nike or I want the Super Bowl brought to me by Budweiser and then that's all you're going to see. I mean, well, can you see yeah. a time when that happens or when you say you know I'm going to have Lost brought to me by Sprite and you know that's it? You just get this one advertiser or you think that's going maybe too far and that's not 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 where it's going? Well, no, I would agree with Chuck. I mean, I definitely. Let me put it this way. I mean, Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser, buy so many ads during the Super Bowl. I don't know why they're not really just the sole sponsor of it. I mean, I know it's a big marketing <laughs> commitment, but they've got the money. They should just do it. Honestly, they should. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely see – I don't know that, it, that that's going to be the model going forward, but I, I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation with it, a lot more use of that as people try to sort of figure out what they're going to do. In, in the interim, while we're trying to see how that shakes out, I do think you're going to see – the network's trying to cut down on the amount of commercial clutter. I think you might see either shorter ad breaks, fewer ad breaks. Um, you already see a couple of the, the networks kind of experimenting with that once again. Um, I think they have to go in that direction. I mean, people are just um, bombarded by ads pretty much everywhere, and they have <laughs> to get a little bit more, um, I guess, creative and sensitive to how they deliver them. And uh, I, for one, am all for it. <laughs> As much, mm-hmm. as much as I love the business of advertising and, cover, and covering it, I'm sympathetic to the consumer that just feels like everywhere they turn, um, they see an ad. So uh, then what could be better than right this very second? <laughs> we take a very <laughs> short commercial break. <laughs> Excellent. We'll be back. <laughs> My point exactly. <laughs> Sit tight and don't move. The Hook will be back after this short break. 
once a tool used exclusively for communicating with the media, PR Web was the first company to develop a distribution strategy around direct-to-consumer communication by implementing Web 2.0 technologies. PR Web has completed the online communication loop by directly engaging your audience with your news. For example, PR Web is the first newswire to integrate press release trackback. Whether you want to dominate your market or just make a little noise, PR Web is here to help you thrive in the marketplace and the media. PR Web. Now, experience the future of web design and development with a whole new level of efficiency, expressiveness, and simplified workflow. Introducing Studio 8, a compilation of the latest releases from Dreamweaver, Flash Professional, Fireworks, Contribute, and Flash Paper. Sure to inspire you to create superior online video sites and mobile content. And now, to this exclusive WebmasterRadio.fm offer, listeners can save a whopping $100 off Studio 8. Visit the online store at Adobe or contact Adobe Customer Services and provide promo code Webmaster Radio in order to receive your discount. Studio 8, your way to create. Wow. I never saw anyone fish with such a wide net before. Oh, really? I don't like fishing with a pole. Can't catch the big ones fast enough. No kidding. You've got a bunch. Yeah, I know. This wide net gives me great distribution and reach. Really? How's it work? Well, fish like to move around to various parts of the lake, so by casting a wide net, I gather fish from everywhere they congregate. Wow, that's pretty smart. Thanks. Wide nets work. And they make you look smart. If you're looking to cast a wider net and fish where the fish are, Look Smart Advertising Solutions can help. Go to signup.looksmart.com to learn more. Flashback, November 2004. A brand new radio station launched onto the World Wide Web. That station was WebmasterRadio.fm. Today, Webmaster Radio is one of the fastest growing internet media outlets in the world. In the world. Webmaster Radio boasts one of the most respected talk radio lineups in the internet business world. Danny Sullivan, Chris Tall, Susan Brett, Jim Hedger, Barry Schwartz, Jeremy Shoemaker, Ryan and Jeffrey Eisenberg, Greg Nyland, Katie Kempner. We travel coast to coast to bring you the most extensive and detailed live coverage of the most high profile trade shows in the world. Ad tech, search engine strategy, RSA, Webmaster World, DMA, Ecom Expo. And we have brought you keynote speeches and interviews of some of the biggest influential names in business today. Eric Schmidt, Andrew Hayward, Barry Diller, John Patel, Keith Barraza, and way too many others to mention. Our live programming and on-demand podcasting keeps the B2B world informed. We are WebmasterRadio.fm and we're everywhere. Blog, blog, blog. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're the talk of the town. WebmasterRadio.fm. Thanks for listening. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. Now back to The Hook. The intersection of advertising and PR. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Now, here's your host. Hi, welcome back. I'm Katie Kemner, and I'm talking today to Holly Sanders from the New York Post. Hello, Holly. Hi. So, um, we're running out of time, but there's a couple of things that I think for all my, you know, colleagues, my PR peeps, i just like to get sort of your uh, word on, which is, what is the best way for someone to get in touch with you if they do think, you know, that they have a story that would be interesting to you? You know, I'm always open to story pitches, but there are a couple of of caveats as um, people who have called me (laughs) can probably attest to. And that is, um, I I like for people to actually know what what a post story is. And and by that, I mean that they've actually picked up the paper and read it and see what I've written in the past. I get an awful lot of pitches with people saying, um, you know, oh, uh, here's a story about a, um, you know, small personal finance site that's um, trying to attract, you know, uh, consumers and I and I say you know when do we write about personal finance when do, you know it's it's I just like for it to be post appropriate and I'm mm-hmm. pretty much beyond that I'm open to most things I really am um, but, but I'm surprised at the number of people who've called me who who just haven't really bothered to take a look and I, I just ask for people to do a little bit of homework first that's that's really it and I think most of my ad colleagues would agree with me on that for our journalism colleagues in general actually. 
And can they call you? Can they email you? I know that's oh, a yeah, very yeah. elementary question. I mean, question, I probably, but... a call or email is best. I mean, what I usually say is if, they, if it's kind of a long-winded explanation for the story that they send me an email outlining it. <laughs> and if I'm interested, I'll give them a call back. Usually the, the one-two punch, I, I do make it a point to go through all my emails. I, occasionally I'll lose one. But for the most part, if, if I haven't called them back about an email, um, I, I tend to not be the type that likes to be bombarded with calls. So, you know, either do the call or the email, um, kind of figure out which one you're going to do, but probably don't do, like, you know, email, call, call again. <laughs> <laughs> the PR person uh, technique, email, call, call again, yeah, email. Yeah, that's happened to me on occasion, and it makes me pretty cranky. <laughs> well, you know what happens is they have someone on their, say, on their side saying, did, did you talk with Holly from the post? Is it going to yeah. go in the post? Is it going to, you know? Yeah, I, I get the impression that there's a list they're trying to check off who said yes and who said no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not your problem. No, no, it's not. You know, and, and I'm not. And I do appreciate the job PR people do. I mean, I get a tremendous number of stories, and I think, I think that's the case for journalism in general. I mean, there's so much news to cover that you do hope that you have enough people in your in your Rolodex, good good people in your profession who know when to call you about stories and alert you to things um, and give you good ideas too. It's not like I think every great idea I've ever written has come from me. <laughs> you know, a lot of my stories come from elsewhere. So I do appreciate that job. I just, like I said, I like it for it to be, um, you know, appropriate and, and also considerate of, of the time constraints on the job too. I mean, I work for tabloid that the turnaround is very, very short. So I really have to have people who are able to work with me on that kind of timeline. You don't have time to chat. Uh, <laughs> except with you, Katie. <laughs> I do. You know, I have. I'll, I'll put it this way: I have time to chat with the people who have, who uh, are truly helpful to me, and um, you know, will make time for me to chat when I need to call them up and pick their brain about something. I mean, I definitely have good relationships with people out there, and I'm more than willing to um, shoot the breeze. You know, <laughs> for for people. You know, but the I guess you could say it's the um, the hit and run. <laughs> Yeah. You know, oh, I have a story I want to pitch you, and it's so great, and it's the coolest thing you'll ever, you know, and it's not. <laughs> and then as soon as they're done, like, I never hear from them again, you know. So um, that's probably the people I don't have a lot of time to chat with. Well, that makes sense. Now, listen, I, I really, we only have time left for one, for one more thing, and so this is something that I like to ask my guests at the end of, uh, of the show, and... I mean, you, you, and it's a great question for you, and, you know, you've come very far in your career already, and you're so young, and I've said that exact same thing now for my past couple guests, because you're all so much younger than me, which uh, is disturbing, but that's a whole other thing. But, but I mean, do you have any advice, you know, to, to people listening that have helped you get where you are today or helped sort of guide you on your career path? Well, geez, that's such a sweet and flattering question, so thank you. And by the way, for your listeners, Katie definitely has a face for broadcast, not radio, just FYI. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I was very determined about how I went into to journalism, and I knew that, that you sort of needed to jump through the hoops. You know, it's, I had the undergrad journalism degree. I got the master's degree. I had a bunch of internships. And I went into um, I went into business reporting where when I was entering the market around, you know, 1999, 2000, there was a big demand. So I guess you could say I kind of played it. I played it fairly smart. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking at getting into a different different journalism career track, be it broadcast or or even diff- a different area of print journalism. You know, government covering politics or you know the capital. Those are much trickier to get into. And I and and not having gone that route, I I probably don't have a lot of advice on that front. But but I can say for you know for business reporting, the way that's how I did it. You know, I had a plan. I did my time also as well at a. Um, at Bloomberg News, which was a business wire, it gave me great training. You know, taught me to write fairly quickly to try to make sense of things on the fly. And you know, I would recommend that's a pretty good route too. I mean, most people who come from the wire services um, can hold their own, so to speak, <laughs> in the in the newsroom. <laughs> so that's not bad advice for anybody looking to break into business reporting. Consider going that route. <laughs> well, thank you. Will you come back mm-hmm. again? Absolutely, I'd love to. This has been a lot of fun. Okay, great. I'm holding you to it. So thank you so much, Holly. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Katie. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And that's all we have time for today. Next week, there's going to be some live reporting, so we uh, won't be around. And then we come back, and my next show is with Steve Hall from Adrance, which uh, is guaranteed to be really interesting. So please listen in. Thank you, and have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye.